Again, we are in Psalm 44. We have one of the Pew Bibles. It's on page 470. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have many of them on the tables in the back. You can grab one. You can even keep one if you'd like. But please pay attention now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, that we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Oh God, we do need to hear from you. We need you to teach us how to bring our sorrows and our pains before you in prayer. Teach us from your word, transform us, and show us more and more how to trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Famously, well, maybe to some, John Kelvin, I don't know if anything from John Kelvin is that famous, but maybe among our folk, famously John Kelvin called the Psalms, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. If you've been around Livingstone, you've probably heard that quoted three or four times. The Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul, and by that, John Kelvin meant that the Psalms give us a picture of the full range of the emotions of the human soul. And the Psalms teach us how to express 
those emotions to God and view these emotions in light of God. It's not necessarily emotions for emotion's sake. It is analyzing and bringing us to draw out and bring these emotions to God, to view them in light of who he is and what he has done. And as the prayer and songbook for the people of God, the Psalms remind us that all of our varied emotions as people have a place in the corporate worship of God. Again, these were prayers that would have been prayed and sung in the worship of the people of God. Now, that isn't, again, to say that worship itself is emotions-driven. The Psalms are thoroughly God-centered and richly theological. But it is to say that we should pay attention to how our varied human experiences and emotions come to bear on how we worship God when we gather together as the people of God. I want you to think back to some worship services you've been to in the past, both at Livingstone or a previous church that you're in. What would you say are the primary moods of a corporate worship service? What are the moods that come out in corporate worship? Thanksgiving? Definitely. Joy? Adoration? Sorrow? most likely your answer would be that the primary mood of a corporate worship service is a mood on the more bright side of the human emotion spectrum or the happy side. Now, is that wrong? No, I don't think that's wrong at all. Our worship should be marked by thanksgiving and joy and praise and adoration. In fact, that is what all of our worship is driving towards our eternal experience of thanksgiving and joy and praise of our God. But in this life, when we gather together as God's people, do the moods that are more on the dark side, the sad side, the confused side, the uncomfortable side, do those have a place in our worship? If the Psalms, again, are a model for us in our worship, then the answer is definitely. This summer, we've been looking at how the Psalms inform the different parts and elements of our corporate worship services. So far, we've looked at calls to worship, adoration, confession, assurance, and then last week with Luis, Thanksgiving. Already, one of those elements, an element we have every single week, is perhaps more on the sad side of the spectrum. Confession of sin. We come before our God. We acknowledge our sin before him. This morning, we're looking at another element of our worship services that is perhaps more on the sad and somber side, lament. If you're not familiar with the word lament, it simply refers to how we voice our pain and our sorrow and our disorientation and suffering to the Lord so that we would learn how to trust in the Lord. It's how we voice our pain, sorrow, disorientation, and suffering to the Lord so that we may learn how to trust in the Lord. And we need lament. You cannot live a healthy Christian life without lament. Of all the genres in the book of Psalms, lament is the most prevalent. In fact, many scholars, including Bruce Walkey, a a kind of an authority on the Psalms, consider over one-third of the Psalms to be Psalms of lament. I want you to take that in for just a moment. There are more psalms of lament than there are psalms of thanksgiving. Is that mirrored in any way in how we worship God? And I'm asking not only this, the church in general, but us as a church. Is lament 
a significant part of what we do together as the people of God. God knows that you need lament. But do you know that you need lament? Because we do suffer. We like to say, again, that it's not a question of if you will suffer, but when and how. I would bet, actually, that every single person in this room right now is impacted by suffering in one way or another. Whether strained or broken relationships, physical pain, the taunting of people who look down upon your belief in Christ, discouragement at work, unmet longings, depression, anxiety, and the list goes on. Psalm 44 is one of the psalms that we need to learn. We need to learn its words and learn its language, and have it sink into our souls so that we can bring our lament to our God. And Psalm 44 contributes a needed perspective on suffering because it deals with a very specific kind of suffering. It deals with unexplained suffering. By unexplained suffering, I don't mean like unexplained and unknown to God. God knows why, but I'm talking about for us. The type of suffering where we, if someone asked, why is this happening? We would say, I have no idea. I have no clue what God is doing in this suffering. I have no clue why it's happening to me or what I have done. Or even if it's something that I haven't done, I don't know, Lord, why. Unexplained suffering. And for the original singers of Psalm 44, I'm going to keep referring to it as a song because the first line there, it's to the choir master. This is a psalm to be sung. The first singers of this psalm, they were crying out with unexplained suffering because of defeat in battle. Now, suffering is an incredibly disorienting experience because we often don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to us. And doesn't so much of our suffering fall into this category in our lives? And Psalm 44 teaches us how to speak and sing to God in unexplained suffering. And the big idea of the passage, if you're taking notes this morning, is this. That we need to learn the language of lament in the midst of unexplained suffering. We need to learn the language of lament in the midst of unexplained suffering. There are two realities about the suffering of God's people in Psalm 44 that is unexplainable to the original singers of this psalm and those who wrote it. Two reasons that their suffering is disorienting for them and doesn't make sense to them. The first is that God seems to be treating them differently now than he treated them in the past. God seems to be treating them differently in the present now than he did in the past. And if you're taking notes and you want something short to write down, the past versus the present. The past versus the present. If you look at Psalm 44 with me, look at the first eight verses. This is an interesting lament because these first eight verses of the psalm don't look like a lament, do they? You read verses one through eight, it sounds like a psalm of thanksgiving. It sounds like a psalm of praise. This is recounting God's salvation of his people, God's victory over his enemies in the past. There's kind of two stages to the past here. Verses one through three are the distant past. The people recall, again, we see how their fathers have told them about the works of God. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us. 
Ethan, Kate, parents of covenant children, great lesson for you. Teach your children the works of God and all of you who are parents, right? Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. It goes on to talk about the mighty hand of God, particularly in two events, in the exodus and in the conquering of the land. We see the exodus into verse two, but you set them free. Them you set free. That's a reference to Egypt. And then they're brought into the promised land. The beginning of verse two, with with your own hand, you drove out the nations, but them you planted. And they're saying, our parents told us, oh God, what you have done all the things that you have done in the past. And we, if you grew up in the church, not assuming all of you did, you could probably say something similar. I remember when my dad read to me the story of Moses in the Passover. I remember when my mom told me about King David and Goliath. I remember when my parents sat down and read to me about Paul and about Peter. We know about the works of God in the distant past. And we should remember those. We should teach those things to the coming generations. But where verses 1 through 3 are the distant past, verses 4 through 8 recount God's victory in the recent past, in the actual lives of the people who would have been singing this psalm. They remember how God has saved them from their foes, that God has put uh, their enemies to shame. And for us, this looks like remembering throughout our lives the things that we have seen God do in our lives, the times when God's work has been especially, especially clear to us. Lexi and I are in the adoption process. Yesterday, many of you actually, we had a group of over 50 people come and help, help us to work on a single mom's or a mom who's raising children by herself to work on her house to raise funds for our adoption. And we have been blown away by what God has done in providing for her and providing for us as a couple what we need for adoption. This is something that we should call to mind through the rest of our lives. Remember, God has provided abundantly for us. We should remember the works of God in our lives. And in both cases, though, here in Psalm 44, when they remember these victories of the past, notice that the emphasis is placed on God's activity, God's work in those things, in those salvation moments, in those times of victory. Look over and over again how the psalmist uses the word you to address God as the actor. You drove out the nations. You planted your people. You afflicted the enemies. You freed your people. And this wasn't by their might. It wasn't by their sword. No, it was by your right hand and your arm, the light of your face, for you delighted in them. That's just a couple of verses. It goes on and on throughout verses one through eight. You, God, you, God, not us, not us. We don't do it. Not my sword, your strength, God. Now, if you ended here, if you ended at verse eight, this would definitely be a happy Psalm of Thanksgiving. But it doesn't end there, does it? There's a massive shift in verse 9. It's really important for us to notice. They go from the distant past to the recent past, and then verses 9 through 16 to the present. Notice how shockingly different verses 9 through 16 are from what precede it. Verses 1 through 8 are victories. Verses 9 through 16 are all about defeat. They've been defeated in battle. They've been scattered by their enemies. They're taunted by those who hate them. And it seems like God is doing this and says, God, you sold us for nothing. It feels like there's no gain from any of these things that have happened to us. Oh, God. It's a complete 180 reversal from what we saw before. But it's not just that the situation, the external situation is different for these people. 
but that God himself seems to be treating them differently. Remember the repetition of you in verses one through eight? Look at nine through 16. You see it there again. You have rejected us. You have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. It goes on and on. Dr. Ligon Duncan calls these types of situations dark providence. Dark providence. He says it's those times when it seems as if God himself is against us or has forgotten us. This situation is dark providence. But notice what that includes. Providence. It is still providence. Notice that in Psalm 44, they don't deny God's sovereignty over the good and the bad. We might be led in our suffering and the brokenness of this world to say that God couldn't possibly be in control with all of this evil that I see and that I feel. We might try to solve the problem by saying God isn't actually in control. God isn't actually sovereign over the bad things, just the good things. I want to praise him for the blessings, but God doesn't have anything to do with my sorrows. But the very reason that they're crying out to God in lament is because they affirm the sovereignty of God over the situation, including their suffering. And this is what makes for them the situation so hard to swallow. This is what makes it so disorienting for them. Not that God is just merely distant, but it feels as if the very hand of God is pressing them down in their suffering. Don't we face the same kind of unexplained suffering and disorienting suffering in our lives? We've heard of the great works of God in the past, of miraculous healings, people delivered from demons and suffering, but then We experience those things and we say, God, why aren't you working that same miracle now? I know you can. I know you have in the past. I've even seen you do it in my life. But why right now does it feel like you are against me? Why does it feel like you are not doing and treating me in the way that you have always treated me? In the present, it can feel like God is against us. So suffering can be unexplainable because it feels like God is treating us differently than he did before. We see secondly, though, in Psalm 44, that sometimes suffering is unexplainable because it isn't clearly tied to something we did wrong. It isn't clearly tied to something we did wrong. If you want that simplified for your notes, sometimes suffering isn't from our sin. Sometimes suffering isn't from our sin. We want the reason for suffering to always be clear to us. We want to view the world as if there's always a one-to-one correlation between doing something bad and then having bad consequences. We want a world of karma. Well, I don't think we actually want a world of karma, but we want to think that this is perhaps how the world works. It's a little bit more simple, isn't it? But that's not how the world works. And we know that's not how the world works. We live in a world where sometimes the most wicked people we know are the very people who get ahead, who have the big house and all of the money. And the most godly people are the ones who are being pressed down, oppressed, and killed even for their faith. Now, we know, of course, that in the end, we know how this is going to work out. We know how it works out for the wicked person. We know how it works out for the person that trusts in God. But in this life, doesn't it seem backwards to us 
sometimes. Look at verses 17 through 22. In verse 17, the choir sings out, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Now, it's not that they're claiming moral perfection here. They're not saying, I have been flawless in my keeping of the law. No, but they are saying that, God, we have not betrayed you. We have not turned and worshipped idols. This isn't the same type of situation that we saw in the minor prophets where the people were dragged off into exile because they consistently and persistently turned to idols. They're saying, we haven't done that. And God, if we had done that, you would know. You are the all-knowing, all-seeing God. You know our hearts. You know that we have not been false to you. We have not turned to idols. Sometimes, even most times, suffering doesn't have a quick and easy explanation. And it's not always or even often tied to a specific thing that we have done. Now, suffering is always tied to sin in the most general terms. Suffering is always a result of the fall and the sins of Adam and Eve. But there is not always this one-to-one correlation between your sin and your suffering. How is it that some of the most godly people we know are those who suffer the most? Now, it could be that they're the most godly people we know because they suffer the most. It's not always how it works. Have you ever read a missionary biography from the 19th century? century. Have you read of those missionaries who are preparing to move onto the field who then die of cancer? A missionary who has been preparing, who dies in a shipwreck, or whose children die. Read of Adoniram Judson and of his sufferings as he brought the gospel to Burma. Why is it that the people who are giving their lives to serve God are those who suffer so deeply under the hand of God? How can this be? In our own lives, why is it that parents can pray persistently for their children, can teach them the gospel, can teach them the word, and then still have their children walk away from the Lord? I don't get it, God, is something that is completely appropriate for Christians to cry out. I don't get it, God. This should inform the way that we comfort those who are suffering. To not try to so quickly and easily explain things away. Think of the husband, and I'm one of these husbands, who tries to fix it when your wife is suffering. You want to give the answer that's going to solve the problem. But maybe what she actually needs is you to sit by her, hold her, cry with her, and pray with her. Maybe the first thing that we should all do when comforting someone in suffering is not to fix the issue or provide answers, but to lament with that person, to sit and cry out to God with them. In fact, the closest thing we get to an answer in this entire psalm is verse 22. They cry out, yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. For your sake. Sometimes the only answer that we receive is the big picture answer. I don't know all of God's reasons for your suffering and mine. I don't always know the intricacies of what God is doing. Sometimes the only thing that we know is that in the end, God will get all of the glory. And is that not what we are aiming at as the people of God, the glory of our God? So what are we to do when we face this kind of unexplained suffering? What should we do? This is where we need the language of lament. 
It's like, sometimes it's almost like learning a new language for us. Something that we're so not used to doing. We're used to shoving our suffering down, pretending it doesn't exist. We're used to putting on a happy face when inside we're in turmoil, but we say, that person asks, how are you doing? We say, good, and we move on. We don't, we're not really always acquainted with what it's like to cry out to God with our pain. It's like learning a new language, becoming acquainted with new words and new ways of communicating with God. So what are we to do? First, acknowledge. Acknowledge. The first 22 verses of Psalm 44 don't make any real requests of God. They simply lay out the situation. They say to God, God, this is what is happening, and this is why it doesn't make sense to me. No answers, no commands, just simply, this is how it is, God. Sometimes don't we need to do that? Just sit down and lay it all bare before God. This is what's going on. But then second, we see that they bring their questions. So acknowledge, then bring your questions to God. One of the marks of lament in the Psalms is question asking. So if you are reading through the Psalms and you come across questions like the questions you see in verse 23 and 24, you've probably run into a lament. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Now, of course, if you sat an Israelite down and gave them a theological exam and you'd said, and you asked them, now, does God like actually sleep? Does God forget things? They would say, of course not. God doesn't actually sleep. God doesn't forget things. So why are they crying out, God, why are you sleeping? Why do you forget us and forget our affliction? Because it it feels to them as if God is sleeping. It feels to them as if God has forgotten. So they cry out with these questions. Why? 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 When kids first start learning to ask questions, they love to ask these questions. Why? 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 Don't they? All right, we need to hop in the car and go to the grocery store. Why? Well, because we need food. Why? Well, because food helps us to survive. Why? Well, because of nutrients and vitamins and protein and stuff. And, you know, it can go on almost endlessly with the string of why questions. But do you know that God isn't bothered or annoyed by our questions to him? He's not. In fact, he invites our questions to him. There's a reason he laid out these questions in the Psalms. He gave us language to ask questions to him. We can say to God and ask of him, why God? What are you doing, God? Where are you, God? Or as Psalm 13 says, one of my favorites, how long? Four times in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord? To learn the language of lament, you need to learn to ask questions. So acknowledge, bring your questions, then bring your requests. The final verses are full of imperatives or commands, or when they're addressed to God, it's by way of request to him. It's, it's awake, rouse yourself, do not reject us forever, rise up, come to our help, redeem us. In times of lament, maybe we need to sit down and ask ourselves, what is it right now that I desperately need from God? What do I actually most need from him right now? And bring that request to God. Cry out to him. Luke 18, Jesus gives us a parable 
of this widow who persistently went to an unjust judge and pled with him for justice over and over again, wore the man down. And eventually the judge gave in and gave this widow her request. The judge in that parable said, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. But then Jesus says, and will not God give justice to his elect when they cry to him day and night? The point is that God is so totally different from that unjust judge, but even the unjust judge, when pestered with persistent questions, gave in and says, our father hears us, go to him day and night, pray as if you are actually trying to knock down the very doors of heaven with your requests. Persistent prayer, acknowledge, bring your questions, bring your requests. And then lastly, trust God's character. The psalm turns from crying to trusting, specifically by focusing us in right at the very, very end of this psalm on the character of our God. Mark Vrogop says in, in a book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, he says, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. I love that. To cry is human. In fact, he even points out, you are born crying. Okay, to cry is simply human, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Now, why is lament Christian? To lament is Christian because lament is not mere crying, but it's crying out to the Lord in a way that leads us to find comfort in what we know to be true about our God. Lament is crying that is theologically informed. It comes with a knowledge of our God and his attributes and his character. It doesn't mean that sorrow is taken away, does it? When we lament, it doesn't mean the pain is always minimized, right? To say it's not a big deal, but it's to say that we can learn to trust in our God in the midst of our suffering. Look at the last line here, the very last line of this whole Psalm, verse 26. Redeem us. For the sake of your steadfast love. I believe the author of this psalm was very, very particular. He was very intentional in the way that he ended this psalm. The last word of Psalm 44, it's one word in Hebrew. It's translated as three words in English. Your steadfast love. The last word, what does he leave us with? He leaves us with the anchor of hope in our suffering, the steadfast love of God. Why can we bring our questions and requests to God? Precisely because we know the character of God, because we know that he loves us, because we know that he hears us. And so we can cry out and we can appeal to who he is in our prayers. We can say, God, this is who you are. Therefore, I cry out to you with my questions and requests because you are the God of steadfast love. When we suffer, especially unexplained suffering, like in Psalm 44, perhaps our most serious temptation is to doubt the love of God, is it not? We doubt that God loves us. To believe that those things are happening to me because God hates me. Because God is really against me 
that God can't possibly love me. What we believe is that suffering can separate us from the love of God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Our assurance of pardon. Look at Romans 8, verse 35. Notice that Paul knows exactly the reality that suffering can lead us to doubt the love of God. But in verse 35, what does he say? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, Notice this is a quotation from Psalm 44. We'll get to that in a second. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Look at that list of things in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, things that come at us from enemies, things that come at us from the environment, whatever it is around us, things that are attacking us. It's easy to, easily to, to, to breeze right through these beautiful affirmations all through Romans 8 and to kind of breeze through this list of sufferings. But Paul doesn't want us to breeze through this list. Why, as this beautiful, perhaps the most beautiful chapter in the entirety of the Bible, as this chapter is crescendoing as the tempo is increasing in Paul's argument. Does he pause his argument mid-thought to quote from Psalm 44? I think it's easy almost to read this section as if the quotation doesn't even exist, to go right from the question to the answer, no. But Paul doesn't do that. He stops us. He quotes Psalm 44, 22. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why? Because he wants us to slow down and remember that all of these forms of suffering, persecution, and pain are not just ideas. They're not just hypotheticals, but they are realities for the people of God. And that they have always been realities for the people of God. And this quotation slows us down just as the tempo increases in Romans 8 to remind us of this reality and to invite the reader of Romans 8 into the cries of lament of Psalm 44. To draw us back into asking God, why shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword separate us? Oh God, why is this the reality? Why do we suffer? And it's precisely when we are drawn into the lament of Psalm 44, and that sinks deeply into our hearts, that the no of verse 37 gives a full and resounding answer to the question of the lament. Paul's answer, no, is the answer to Psalm 44. It is the answer to the love of God in the midst of our suffering. As Paul goes on, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we learn to trust in our lament, we learn to trust that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We learn to trust that even in the times of dark providence, when it feels like God is against us, that these trials are sent our way by the hand of a sovereign and loving God, a God who loves you more than you could possibly imagine, and a God whose love will never be taken from you. That is the God who is sending suffering your way. It is not because he hates you. It is because he loves you. And that makes all the difference in the world to how we suffer as Christians. And that is precisely what makes lament Christian and not mere tears. But to end, how can we know this? How can we know that God loves us? How can we be sure of it? Because we're so easily tempted to doubt it. We can know that God loves us, present tense. Because God loved us, past tense. Look at verse 37 with me. This is our last verse here. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This whole section is an affirmation of God's present love that can never be taken away. Yet all of a sudden, Paul goes to the past tense and he says, the God who loved us. Why the past tense? Because God is reminding us here of the greatest way in which he has loved his people. If you look at the context of verses 31 through 39, it comes out. What he's talking about is God sending his son into the world to suffer for us. To bear our griefs, to carry our sorrows, to be pierced for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities. As Paul said earlier in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to know that God loves you, there is one place to look, and that place is the cross of Jesus Christ. To look there and see the love of the God who sent his son for your sins. And what do we see when we look to the cross? We see a Savior lamenting for us, don't we? As we cry out, why? 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 What were the words of Jesus on the cross from Psalm 22, a psalm of lament? My God, my God, why? My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? When we lament, let us remember that Jesus lamented for us. Do you know that Jesus lamented for you? When we ask why and we don't hear a response, let us remember that Jesus asked why. And he didn't hear a response. And let us remember that he cried out in lament so that our laments wouldn't be without hope. Because in Christ, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we are people who go through much pain in this life. We go through much suffering, and we don't know why always, Father. So we cry out to you, hear us, O God, hear us in our pain. Teach us to acknowledge our 
suffering and our pain to you, to cry out with our questions, teach us to bring our requests, make us fluent, God, in the language of lament so that we can learn to trust you, so that the reality of your love for us in Christ would sink so deeply into our souls that we would be able to sing and trust and praise you in the deepest and darkest of suffering that this life can bring. Oh, Father, show us Christ and keep our eyes on his cross, we pray. Amen.